I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be covering the first all-Asian cast in a Hollywood movie since the Joy Luck Club in 1993, Crazy Rich Asians, the latest collaboration between Mark Wahlberg and Peter Berg, co-starring Eco Oase, Mile 22, and the very delayed Sony release of the supposed origins of domesticated dogs, Alpha, plus this month's Ghibli Fest, Grave of the Fireflies. Let's get started. I met a girl, I fell in love, and I want to marry her. You're Nicholas Young, you're untouchable. But Rachel's not. Have you prepped Rachel to face the wolves? You know I'm back, like I never left. I really admire you. It takes guts coming all the way over here, facing Nick's family. Another day, another breath. I know this much. You will never be enough. Yo, it's about time someone stood up to Auntie Eleanor. Well, you, not me. Oh, God. She can't know I was ever here. I feel glorious, glorious. Got a chance to stop I was born for this, born for this. Ever since I can remember, my family has been my whole life. Rachel, Rachel. If Nick chose me, he would lose his family. And if he chose his family... He might spend the rest of his life resenting you. You nasty. You got a nasty. You got nastier. Yeah. It's crazy to think about, but this is the first all-Asian cast in a Hollywood movie, to be specific. Because there's plenty of all-Asian cast from Japan, Korea, China, Hong Kong, Indonesia. Yeah. But the first completely Asian-centric movie from Hollywood in 25 years. It took a quarter of a century for another one to show up uh, after the Joy Luck Club, which itself was also based on a very popular book at the time. And sadly, this, this, is, this, is, this is a lot of problems. This is a big problem for a lot of other minorities. You see, like, there's a, there's a big prominence of black cinema, and we're seeing that, a, a big push of that uh, lately, which is good, but at the same time, we should also be pushing for more diverse casts of all types. Uh, Latinx, uh, more Middle Eastern, North African, uh, straight up African, uh, more A- more Eastern Asian. Uh, you just more diverse casts and stories and top. Like we shouldn't be relying on the same old. Eurocentric idea of well, we have to have white people in it, or else people won't go see it. Black Panther has disproven that, and uh, we're also seeing good results from Crazy Rich Asians. Hey, how about that? You give people a platform to tell their stories, and they and people will go see it. Fancy that. Maybe if you put some effort into it, you'll finally disprove the adage that you put in place so that you don't disrupt the status quo. At any rate, yeah, this is based on the book by, I believe, Kevin Kwan. And this is part of a series of his because there's like a whole bunch about uh, just the uber top, top 1% of the 1% lifestyle that comes from like Shanghai and Singapore. This one's based out of Singapore. And so you see that, you know, there's a lavishness almost unmatched here in America. Like, you think those uber-rich are over here are bad? Not bad, but, like, you think you think there's uber-rich over here? Oh, let's head over to Asia, where it's just, like, almost 
insane levels of rich, like almost inhuman levels of opulence going on. And so you've got a story centered on a Chinese-American woman who is first-generation American. Her mother was a, was an immigrant, emigrate, immigrated to America and, and raised her daughter in New York. And the movie opens up with Rachel Chu, played by Constance Wu, best known currently uh, as the mom, I believe, in Fresh Off the Boat. Let me double-check that. I, I honestly haven't seen Fresh Off the Boat, but um, I'm assuming she's the mom alongside Randall Park as the dad. Yeah, that seems to be the that seems to be the case. So here she's the romantic lead, and she is just dynamite. Like I'm shocked that we still haven't seen more from her. Like Randall Park has been in plenty of stuff as a comedic as a comedic actor but we're we barely i this is the my first time really seeing a constance wu led movie i don't i don't even remember what i've seen her in besides this sound of my voice parallels uh 9 minutes east siders she was the voice of the mayor in the lego ninjago movie tv stuff yeah she's she episode of torchwood like, she's barely been in anything, and I hope that the success of Crazy Rich Asians means, hey, let's put you in more things, because you're good. And yeah, she carries this movie. She's phenomenal as Rachel. And we also have a first-timer acting alongside her, and he is actually really charming. Uh, Henry Golding, this is his first feature film, and I could absolutely see him going doing his own thing being a leading man and other stuff i hope so because he is he is downright just he is a character people were saying um because they've been talking about idris elba finally playing bond and i mean henry golding he has the voice for bond i'm just saying i mean i don't know how he could do an action but i'm just saying dude's got it Dude's got it going on. So Henry Golding is great. And then you've got some familiar faces. You've got Ken Jeong as uh, Aquafina's dad in this movie. Aquafina, who we just saw in, um, what was it? Uh, Ocean's 8. And you've also got one of, you know, one of my personal favorites and goddess among, among us mere mortals, Michelle Yeoh, as the matriarch of this family. You've all, um, Gemma Chan, some might know, she's been playing uh, on British TV. Like, she had a, had has had roles in Sherlock and uh, Mary Queen of Scots. Apparently, she's going to be in the TV ser- TV miniseries for Watership Down. She's a, she's a, pro- she's a pretty prominent, uh, she's played Quintessa in The Last Night. I forget that role. Uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, she was in. Uh, Jack Ryan's Shadow Recruit. Uh, Bedlam. Fresh Meat, Secret Diary of a Call Girl is her main one. She played Charlotte in that. Uh, female Sulu in IT Crowd. I missed that. Uh, Sherlock, Doctor Who uh, in the Waters of Mars episode. She's been you know steadily working. She's a she's a British actress. So, I mean, she's been in some British staples there, and um, she's do and she's phenomenal as she her subplot is almost as could almost be its own movie. It's so good. And she is, she is, she alongside Michelle Yeoh are like the two powerhouses. Like Constance Wu has the arc and she's the one with a lot of character growth and development. But 
Gemma Chan and Michelle Yeoh are like just just goddesses of femininity and just like handling business. They got this. Um, you also got you also will see some familiar faces. J- Jimmy O Yang plays uh, uh, plays a, plays a supporting role, he, he, being from uh, Silicon Valley, and something called Those Who Can't, uh, which is a true TV like teacher comedy. It looks like, uh, but he's best known for Silicon Valley. Uh, you also have Ronnie Chang, Ronnie Chang uh, from Daily Show in a, in a small in a supporting role. Nico Santos, who is a Filipino Filipino actor, uh, was. What was he last in? Because he's apparently biggest thing here besides Crazy Rich Asians is Paul Blart, Mall Cop 2, and then The Clapper and Go-Go Boy Interrupted. But apparently he's he's got a, bit, a prominent role in Superstore. So, I mean, I'm not sure why that's not listed higher. Like, what the hell, IMDb? Wait, what's this? The Girl Who Loved Godzilla. What is this? Godzilla and his girlfriend experience a very public breakup. I love this. Anna Akana. Anna Akana, I love you. This is beautiful. Thank you. Apparently she's a writer on Ant-Man, too. She is... She's beautiful. She, she is just... That is such a beautiful, short idea. I need to go seek that out immediately. So, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. Uh, Nico Santos plays sort of the... Rainbow Sheep. His words, not mine. Of the family. And he's kind of... He's could have easily come off as a stereotype, but he's so well-rounded and developed as a character and enough uh, in a supporting role that he doesn't come off as a stereotype and a joke character and like, ha-ha, his, his joke is that he's gay. Ha-ha-ha, <laughs> isn't that funny? Aren't gay people so silly? No, it's... He's, he, t- he, has, he has, you know, enough depth to him as well. Um, so that he's not like a full on stereotype. Aquafina, I think, is actually better here than in uh, Ocean's Eight. Uh, you also got Lisa Liu, uh, who was speaking of the Joy Luck Club, was the mother in the Joy Luck Club, and is also featured in The Last Emperor in 2012. Uh, she is the sort of grandmother matriarchal character, whereas Michelle Yeoh runs everything. Lisa Liu's character is sort of the like the figurehead queen so to speak michelle yo runs that runs the business runs everything while uh lisa Liu is kind of like the one who that comes in and people you know everyone kisses kind of like a godfather sort of kisses the rings so to speak and she's really interesting she gives a, gives a decent performance as well for well you know for all the time she's on screen some i don't recognize uh harry shum jr plays the groom in this movie and he's kind of acting alongside Henry Golding, uh, Mike Chang and Glee step up three, two and three. So that explains his connection. Cause this is actually from the director of step up two and three, as well as the Justin Bieber, never say never er, movie and freaking gem in the holograms and GI Joe retaliation. This dude has not been tied to great films. And yet here he is bringing to life a well, a, a beloved uh, recent book and give, giving one of the, making one of the best movies of his career. This is his, I can't see him going higher than this. This is a great opportunity for him. And I'm interested to see how he follows it up. 
I hope it's not, you know, like a lot of other uh, you know, Oscar, like, you know, people who win Oscars and then go into really crappy movies afterwards. Like how uh, Queen Latifah, after winning the Oscar, was next seen in Taxi. Or um, uh, after, even while, while he was uh, nominated for the Oscar, Eddie Murphy's Norbit got released. So, I mean, I hope it's nothing like that. Uh, Chris Pang is in here as uh, Jimma Chan's husband, and that whole arc is 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 solid. Uh, but he's best known for the Netflix series, uh, the Netflix Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon sequel. So he actually guessed... He, this is actually his second movie alongside Michelle Yeoh. Neat. And then he's also he was also in the Marco Polo uh, series that Netflix did, if you can remember that. Um, but yeah, mostly, uh, you know, not a lot of people you would know. I think the biggest names are probably going to be, uh, Michelle Yeoh, Ken Jeong, and then if you're, if you watch, uh, Fresh Off the Boat, Constance Wu. Otherwise, most of them are, are, are smaller, smaller named actors, but there's, everyone does a fantastic job in this movie. I can't stress that enough. The cast here is amazing. They nail their characters perfectly. Um... It does follow a lot of rom-com tropes. I think that was the big thing with people is that they were worried it's going to be just another stereotypical rom-com. The, those elements are there, but at the same time, it doesn't fall into the trap of, um, you know, like, there's the whole liar revealed thing. But at the same time, it's not quite that. It's more the family is showcasing just how, uh, just how far they're willing to go to... Uh, to almost be petty and vindictive, and it it becomes a breaking point for uh, Rachel, and then but like when the when it's revealed that he's rich, you pretty much see it in the trailer. Like um, she's not like, how could you lie to me? You know why? How you know how can I trust you again? It's more like, okay, you're rich. All right, let's do this. <laughs> you know she just like kind of goes with it initially. Like, yeah, we're not gonna. I'm not gonna just. Give anything up yet? Let me let me meet your family. I could get used to this, but um, it really and then it plays and then the more emphasis is you know there's more emphasis on the cultural differences, like Constance, namely being Constance Wu was an American and Michelle Yeoh's biggest point in that in that here's the best part: Michelle Yeoh is not played off as the villain of the movie. You know how at, like. There's so many rom-coms where the mother-in-law is the bad guy that everyone that that has to be won over or defeated. Here it's more Constance Wu's Rachel has to prove herself to show that she is capable of, you know, being, you know, work being a part of this family. And it's you know, she's butting heads against uh Nick's ex Nick's exes and, you know, other social climbers and insiders that don't like her because she, you know, she's not only because she's not as rich as them, but also because she is an outsider. She's an American while they're all mostly Chinese and like mainland Chinese. And so you've got this pushback from Rachel, but it's also very believable because there is that sort of difference. It's like the idea that uh, a black person in America will go back to Africa and there's there's going to be that difference because black you know black Africans are you know have a different cultural experience than black Americans do, and it's that kind of you know it's that kind of thing of 
returning to your motherland is not what you think it's going to be. There's going to be some cultural differences that you have to under that you have to kind of come to understand. And that's the main impetus of this movie. That's the main theme of this movie. And that's the reason to go see it. Is the is to see Rachel Chu's journey into becoming a member of this family. And yeah, everyone here is phenomenal. The only parts I will point out are the problems are the third act is kind of weak because it does rely on those tropes a bit too much. But at the same time, they're not like it's not a terrible thing. It's more like eh, you couldn't, you didn't have to go that way. But at the same time, that could have been the the what happened in the book as well. I can't, I haven't read the book, I can't compare them. But the only other, the, like the worst part of this movie is a single character, and that is Aquafina's character's brother, who is a creeper and a and a weirdo. And yet he's treated as like a joke character, like, oh, his creepiness is endearing and he's cute in that sense. And it's like, yeah, no, guys who take pictures of you, uh, try, you know, trying to sneak pics of you and to, to keep on their phone and acting all creepy. And then the joke is supposed to be, hey, you could always date my creepy brother. No, like the way you handle this is either... He's creepy, but he gets his comeuppance. Like he gets his phone gets blown up, and he lo- and he gets called he gets called out on it every time he's being creepy, and he you know he's his creepiness is not tolerated. Or you make him charmingly awkward, like he he's trying to be nice, but he's bad at social communications, that sort of thing. Instead of him sneaking pics, have him try to be like. Hey, this is for you. Uh, and then, like, have him not know what to do around a woman as pretty as uh, Constance Wu. That sort of thing. I think that kind of awkwardness plays off as more charming and more uh, forgivable than outright creepiness, which is what we get from him. And I feel like allowing that creepiness to go unpunished is a is a bad is, is in bad form. But I don't know. That's just me. So yeah, overall, Crazy Rich Asians takes the basis of your average rom-com and builds on it to create a very unique experience. And that's the thing. This was originally slated to be a Netflix movie? I'm sorry. Does Black Panther deserve to be a Netflix movie? Does Sorry to Bother You deserve to be a Netflix movie? Like, Black Klansman is a Netflix movie. Like, no, these kinds of things deserve to be seen on the big screen. That's the other thing I forgot to mention. It's, it kind of dabbles in wealth porn in that it showcases, like, this opulence in a way it, it, as, a, as a means to showcase, oh, look at how fancy and wealthy everybody is over here and just how it, it, almost, it kind of plays off the whole travelogue experience, too. Like, a lot of rom-coms will do that. A lot of, you know, pretty, pretty bad Rom-coms will do that. They'll just basically be wealth porn to show show off fancy locations and to be and to and to just basically be travelogues for some exotic locations. And yet, this doesn't rely solely on that. You're, there is a main focus on the characters, so it subverts that trope, thankfully, while also showcasing the setting because there's 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 even a great sequence of them finding the all this like truck food essentially uh in the marketplace uh in singapore and just getting all of this amazing homemade food that just is mouth-watering to look at john m chu knew exactly how to how to 
shoot film, shoot food in a way that just makes your mouth water watching it. And even the wedding sequence, which isn't Constance Wu's and Henry Golding's wedding, it is the the reason that they're going to Singapore. Henry um, Nick's best friend's wedding. The whole reason they're in Singapore is to, is for that wedding. And while those characters kind of get forgotten partway through the movie, it, the wedding itself is absolutely gorgeous to behold. I've never seen anything like it. And I, I you know, once again, this movie deserved to be shown on the big screen. I could not imagine being forced to watch this on a tiny screen in your apartment. No, this needed the big screen experience. So yeah, go, if you haven't yet... Go see Crazy Rich Asians. It is worth it. How many miles out are we? Well. Our angel can only stay on the ground 10 minutes. They miss that window. They are dead. Pray. Would you come to me and see kill us all? Is that the game today? I'll play. Everything I've seen made me everything I am. Pray. Fast forward, freeze frame on my pistol. Pray. You're chaos. I think I might be worse. I am a killer who looks like a hero. Pray, pray, pray. You feeling calm, Alice? Not even a little. Are you? I'm totally calm. That's because you're mentally unstable. Thank you. Almost fitting that the movie that features a predominantly Asian cast is shown alongside a movie that features the main problem with that Asian actors are facing. Namely, that they are, they're stuck in supporting roles next to meat-headed white dudes. Specifically, we're talking about the latest Peter Berg and Mark Wahlberg collaboration. Now, personally, their collaborations have been diminishing returns. I, re- I really enjoyed it. Was it was an honorable mention for uh, top for my top ten. It would have been my. It was technically my number eleven in 2013 when it came out. Uh, Lone Survivor. I have to revisit that, but I, as far as I remember, that movie is still phenomenal. Um, their follow-up, Deepwater Horizon, was good, but I could tell Mark Wahlberg was shoehorned into that plot. Like, that plot did not need him at all. He's just there to play hero. And Patriot's Day suffered from the same problem. It's a good movie. The parts that deal with uh, there's the Tsarnaev brothers and the investigation and the, and the reco- people's recovery from the, from the attack, that's all good. What isn't? is the fact that Mark Wahlberg's there. Marky Mark is there to play hero boy in a character that never existed. Same with Deepwater Horizon. God forbid Mark Wahlberg produce a movie where he's not the hero. Just let just let the story unfold the way it happened, dude. You don't need to play hero. If you want to play hero, make up your own movie. And then that's what they did with Mile 22. They made up their own story. It's all fictional. Even going so far as to make up a fictional city in Southeast Asia. Where in Southeast Asia? Who the hell knows? No, doesn't say. Malaysia, uh, Myanmar, Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Indonesia, Singapore, the Philippines. It could literally be anywhere in, th- in Southeast Asia. We don't know. I think it's shot in Indonesia. They have an Indonesian martial artist as the as as the supporting a- as the main supporting actor. But we don't know where this is. It's a made-up city in 
in the country. Everyone else has a country. They will list the country where things are taking place. And yet the start of this movie listed as Southeast Asia. That is quite possibly the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Like, maybe you don't want to insult a, 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 a country's reputation or something. But, like, if you want to name a country, it, the city is fictional. The city is fictional. The government of that city that is being that is corrupt is fictional. You could have just named a country. Why is it just Southeast Asia generic? That's like saying, oh, here's a fictional city in Africa. Or here's a fictional city in Europe. Europe, fictional city. What does that what does that tell me? That doesn't tell me anything. It could literally be anywhere. So yeah. This movie is that's the kind of levels of dumb we're dealing with in this movie. And while Mark Wahlberg does get to play a hero in a fictional role here, he is the wor- giving the worst performance I've seen since the happening. This is happening levels of performance from Mark Wahlberg. He's just talking really fast. And that uh, and hey, maybe he'll do this, maybe he'll do this. We don't know. I'm kind of crazy. So I'm just going to talk real fast so that my dialogue makes it sound like I'm saying something of importance. But really, I'm just being an idiot. Oh, look at me. I'm an idiot. Look at me prancing around, blowing stuff up. I'm supposed to be a covert ops agent. So let me blow up an entire fictional city in somewhere, somewhere in Southeast Asia. I'm Mark Wahlberg. I, I'm a competent actor, or at least I used to be. <laughs> this is literally the sketch from Saturday Night Live. Hey, chicken, how's your mother? <laughs> that, that's, that's, I'm expect, I almost half expected to hear Mark Wahlberg just say, ask someone how's their mother, how's, you know, how, how's your mother? <laughs> because that's what we're doing with, he was, he took umbrage at that sketch for how it portrayed him as an actor. And yet he makes movies like this and the Transformers that prove that sketch is... Well, the whole reason for that sketch is existence. He's not a good actor. He really isn't a good actor. He's almost... He's almost Todd in the Shadows brought this up over the weekend. Actors who are parodies of themselves. And he pointed out Mark Wahlberg is there. And he is absolutely right. Mark Wahlberg is a parody of himself. He is not a real actor anymore. He is just Mark Wahlberg in this performance. It, he talks, he has a certain cadence that is, that is in all of his characters. All of his characters kind of talk like this. You know, that's the whole point of the Saturday Night Live sketch. <laughs> God. Oh, it's so bad. Uh, and so, so that's the thing. Peter Berger, Mark Wahlberg... Diminishing returns, but still competent movies. Still movies that are worth seeing. And then the screenwriter for this is a first-time screenwriter, Leah Carpenter, whose uh, debut novel, 11 Hours, was very well received. I, I, I haven't heard of it. I haven't read it. I can't speak to it personally. But hey, if people like it, then that must mean she's a decent writer. So what the what the hell happened here? This this screenplay feels like it was written by a thirteen year old who get who thinks this is what our movies sound like because every other word of dialogue is either an f bomb or an s bomb, you know, like like f f and s f and s. You know, like if I I wish I could go uh, explicit for this episode because it would just be. No bleep and bleep and bleep and bleep 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 and bleep and bleep. I can't wait for the cable cut of this movie because it is going to be hilarious. 
Oi. Just every line of dialogue features somebody swearing for no reason. For no reason. Everybody swears, but it's for no absolutely no reason whatsoever. It is bizarre the way this is written, and I don't understand how this happened. I I'm baffled at this movie's existence because these are people who are capable of good movies. How did they make this? So yeah, the premise here is Iko Owais is a corrupt cop in fictional Indone- fictional Southeast Asian. Can't get gotta get that right. It's not Indonesia. It's Southeast Asia. <laughs> uh, it's like they had an actual country listen, and then they were then they chickened out at the last minute and just went Southeast Asia. Uh, so yeah, Iko Owais is a corrupt cop who turns himself in in the in order to. Um, in order to stop, in order to stop um, a, a stolen collection of cesium from being used as biological weapons, and he only he will only give up their locations after he is um, given transport out of the country, and then on their their way to um, escort him to freedom, you know, escort him to a plane that'll take him uh, outside of the country. He, uh, they're chased by the corrupt. Uh, local police and you know uh, government so this plot isn't new like there have been plenty of action movies that follow this exact same plot you know the escort you know basically the escort mission gone wrong and yet those movies are are not as bad as this one like even the worst of those movies are better than this because not only are all the characters awful like you've got um What's her name from The Walking Dead? Uh, Lauren Cohen as this woman whose only characteristic, whose only backstory is she's in a divorce and she has, there's like this app where if you swear that you get locked out and there's some kind of, it's a stupid app that doesn't make any sense. And and, and she can't help but always be, because everybody has to be swearing in this movie because a 13 year old apparently wrote it. And so she's dealing with a douchey ex-husband who is trying to limit her visitation rights and that's it that's that's all the characterization she gets otherwise it does it, her character does not matter at all and then you got ronda rousey in here who's just basically there to be ronda rousey for no reason uh it's it, like she's not there she's stunt casted and yet horribly underutilized like seriously you've got ronda rousey mma fighter and you know, stunt woman who can easily do kick-ass stunts and fights, and you don't do anything with her. You do nothing with her. Which is more than I can say for Iko Uwais, who does get stuff done with him, but it looks terrible. It looks like crap. It is shot too close, for one thing, and then when it's not shot too close, it's just chopped to hell. I've coined the term hibachi editing because it's like a hibachi chef took his knives to the edit to the film strip and every 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 and less than every second is a cut because cut 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 we have to hide the fact that we don't know what we're doing that's what I get I don't know if they think this is kinetic and this is energetic but it's incomprehensible the same problem plagued the last Resident Evil movie it you just 
can't let the action play out. You have to cut everything, like like we have no, like to confuse the audience. Oh, and then the action's over. What happened? You don't know. You don't need to know because we didn't care. That's this. This has been a problem plaguing action movies for the longest time, and I don't know who started it. I don't know why it's continuing, but it needs to stop. John Wick and, you know, that whole crew, that whole group of guys that have been focusing on long, extensive action sequences that allow for the action sequences to go on. Like, you don't see this in Hong Kong kung fu movies, you know? You see that you don't see this problem in, in good action movies. You only see it in bad action movies. Because I feel like they don't have good choreographers and they don't want to... Or, or it's some stupid stylistic choice that doesn't make any sense and is incomprehensible. I don't get why this style started or and per- is perpetuated. It doesn't make any sense. It is completely incomprehensible. Why do you continue to perpetuate this style? So yeah, not only are all the characters either worthless or annoying, no one takes the cake like Wahlberg. Because Wahlberg has a backstory revealed in the opening credits, where apparently he's hyperactive, has some sort of developmental disorder, which which means he's prone to violence, and he has to have a rubber band on his wrist that he needs to snap in order to, to keep from beating people up. Only that only that little bit is never used after the halfway mark of this movie because it was stupid. Yes, there are kid people with hyperactivity, people with ADHD, people on the autism spectrum, people with a lot of focus issues. They can use the rubber band to keep focused. That's not what Wal- Wahlberg is incapable of presenting that as a character. He does not he does not play hyperactive. He plays asshole. Whatever point they were trying to make with their developmentally disabled superhuman hero character is completely lost because no one one has any idea what they're doing. And Mark Wahlberg is not a good enough actor to portray that because he can't get out of his cadence. He's always got to talk like he's like this. He's always got to have that same cadence. And sometimes he can speed it up. And sometimes he can do this. And sometimes he can do that. But he's always got to play that same. He's always got to give the same performance in every movie. Because he's not a good actor. He's just a meat puppet that stands in the place of a real, of a real human being. He's not a real actor. He's a meat puppet. That's what Mark Wahlberg is. How's your mother? Uh, crap. You know what I'd love to hear? That this, that this, that my mocking him got to him and that he'd be, like, trying to call out low-level internet film critic, not even film critic, like, podcaster for making fun of him. (laughs) Whiny little baby. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, also Mark Wahlberg, um... I'm curious. I'm I'm curious. Everyone brought up to Eco Waste the fact that Mark Wahlberg killed, tried to nearly beat a uh, Vietnam Vietnamese man uh, to death in Boston back in the days before Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. Oh yeah, that was the whole thing. Mark Wahlberg's a racist piece of piece of garbage, and I have yet to see him really change. You know, really show any change of that. I'm I'm sure he's still the same trash human being. He just knows how to hide it well enough. Better than Mel Gibson, his co-star and uh, and and very um 
suitably father character in Daddy's Home 2. Very fitting that Mark Wahlberg's dad would be played by Mel Gibson, because both are garbage. Uh, so, yeah. Um, and the only other thing I will say is, if you pay any semblance of attention to this movie, you can predict the twist. Because they literally give it away after the first credits. They literally give it away what's going to, ha- what's going to happen. This is the worst thriller and mystery I have ever seen because it's literally handed to you on a silver platter. Like, we don't want you to really worry about what's going on because it obviously doesn't matter. (laughs) Uh, And then there's a certain point in the movie where, perfect comparison, in in Mission Impossible, especially the most recent one, uh, Ethan Hunt is chastised for putting his team before the mission. In fact, Angela Bassett brings up that their mission, should they choose to, you know, the whole mission, should, this mission, should you choose to accept it, um, thing where it's like, you will be disavowed if you fail. And you are, you know, you're not, that, that whole thing is like, if, put, if you fail the mission, you know, you are disavowed. That was the point. Their job is to put, you know, is to give their lives up for the mission. That was the whole point of this movie. And yet. Halfway through the movie. After almost all of the team is dead. Mark Wahlberg. When given the, given the shot. To deliver the deliver the asset. To deliver Eco Oasis to the, to the airstrip. Goes back and saves Lauren Cohen. For no reason. Then chastises her. For having to save her. What the hell even is this movie? Like, there was no reason for her to, for him. He spent this entire movie saying the mission comes first. The mission comes first. The mission comes first. Letting his teammates die all along the way. And yet the one teammate, his last teammate deserves to be saved because daughter at home? Like... Because of the stupid divorce subplot at the beginning of the movie that's never brought up after the action starts? That's the whole reason you go back for her? That's stupid. That's stupid. She she picked this line of work. You all picked this line of work. Your mission should you choose to accept it. And yet, and yet, you waste the time. You waste time going back for your, for your, for your teammate when you could have just delivered the asset. Which is your job! See, with Ethan Hunt and him going back for his teammates, we've established these character dynamics. We've established their relationships. We've established their bond. We've esta- we don't want to lose those friends because we've come to know them. We don't know anything about these assholes, and Lord Cohen is just a foul-mouthed, no- yo. Jerk like everybody else. Why do we care that Mark Wahlberg goes back for her? Because it doesn't lead up to anything. Oh, oh, and of course, the best part. Yeah, this movie? They're already planning the sequel. They know that Mile 22 is going to just bring in the box office. And they can't wait for this franchise to get up off the ground. Because there's already a sequel planned out. And they're already, and they all laid, and they laid it all out at the end of the movie. Because, you see, this whole movie, 
Mark Wahlberg has been telling this story to some guys we don't even know. They're just some guys in suits. Supposedly they're from the government, but we don't know that. They don't establish who he's talking to. He's just talking to somebody like he's under interrogation for for the mission, and he's narrating what happened in the mission, despite the fact that that wasn't the... The, that wasn't the narrative device that they set up in the movie. That just is added in later to pad it out, I'm guessing. And, of course, to sequel bait. Hey, we're baiting a sequel. Don't you guys want more? No. Screw this movie. Screw everyone involved. I'm done with this. No more crap like this. Please. I beg you. This August... Experience the incredible story of how mankind discover man's best friend. journey in theaters this august oh charlie brown you blockhead the charlie brown of film studios is at it again because here we've got sony pictures releasing their releasing their first film in collaboration with studio eight alpha which was delayed from september of 2017 its initial release date all the way to August. Nearly, it was all, it was slated for next September. So it was almost going to be delayed an entire year. Which I'll get into more in the discussion portion. Suffice to say that, I don't see why. Like, this could have easily, this was originally slated to come out in March. I see no reason why this should, couldn't have come out in March. Like, late, what was, let me take a look at the release schedule this year. Yeah, 2018 in film. Let's take a look at March. What came out in March? Uh, We don't want to... We'll start with... I think it was mid-March. Tomb Raider, Love, Simon. I could only imagine. Then Pacific Rim Uprising, Isle of Dogs, Sherlock Gnomes. Ready Player One. A Quiet Place, Blockers. Rampage, Truth or Dare. Here's a perfect one. Super Troopers 2 and I Feel Pretty. Get it in right before... Oh, no, wait. That was right before Infinity War. Okay, so there's a couple of ten pulls, but at the same... Like, you could have released this alongside Tomb Raider. Because this could have... What was coming... The only other thing that would have... That would have been a problem is... I can only imagine because... They they propelled that movie to all-time status. One of the highest-grossing Christian movies released in theaters. So, the fact that they dumped it in August is definitely a bad sign. Especially since it was, you know, slated for a September release initially. I don't know why they pushed it, uh, pushed it back to March and then dumped it in August after originally being slated for September. Like, well, there was supposed to be a White Boy Rick, September 14th. 
So apparently they want White Boy Rick to push for the Oscar because that's usually what what a September releases. They're trying to uh, they're they're already starting the Oscar pushes. So I guess they wanted White Boy Rick to be the Oscar push this time instead of Alpha. But I, I I'm, I'm baffled by you, Sony. Why you keep doing this to yourself? And I don't know why. Why do you keep doing this to yourself? I believed in you, Sony. I thought you were on the mend. I thought you were doing in good hands at this point. I re- looked at what was going on with you after, you know, after the release of, um, of Hotel Transylvania, and I thought, okay, Sony's been in a bad spot. It'll be fine. And next thing I know, you're screw- you're screwing up. Uh, the releases of perfectly decent movies, you're still pushing for bad movies. This comes a week after your stupid Slenderman movie. Yeah, Sony Pictures brought that one out. Why do you keep doing this to me, Sony? I believed in you. So, yeah. Uh, This one was actually originally slated as the Salutrian. Salutrian? Uh... It, which is a reference to uh, a style of Paleolithic tool uh, making. So I can see why they switched it over to Alpha. Although the reference it's making to the stupid 1970s study that was debunked by the uh, author of the study himself uh, is kind of stupid. You know, it, it's par for the course. But, like, you know, I get it. it. It's still a prominent thing in society. We still haven't undone the damage of that study. Because it's easy to promote that something stupid, and it's 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 harder to debunk it once it's been adopted by the zeitgeist. You know, by once once people have latched onto the idea, it's hard to undo it. See also anti the anti vax movement. I forget the guy's name, but he's just a dumpster human being, and I hate him with all of my being. Uh, whoever that guy, what's his name from? Who's the anti vax guy? He had that stupid movie, too, uh, Vaxxed. What's his name? Uh, Andrew Wakefield. Andrew Wakefield is a garbage human being, and if I ever meet him, I'm going to punch him in the gut. Sorry, just... God. God, he infuriates me. Anyway. Uh, so, yeah, Alpha... So, yeah, uh, Alpha is uh, the latest uh, release from Sony... Pictures under the Columbia Pictures uh, marquee, and it is the first solo feature film by Albert Hughes, best known as part of the Hughes Brothers. Him and his brother were 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 um, filmmakers who made Menace to Society, From Hell, and their last co-production before they kind of moved locations and split up was The Book of Eli. I have to. Let me double check what the other brother is doing. Um, here, uh, then another one too. Al Alan Hughes was it, it's Albert and Alan Hughes from Hell. Dead Presidents was the other one, which was I think another uh, one of the Lorenz Tate, Keith David, Chris Tucker, Vietnam vet adjusts to life after the war while trying to support his family. Chance of a Better Life may involve crime and bloodshed. There are good thing. I heard good things about that. The, the Hughes brothers were pro- very prominent in that mi- '90s uh, black cinema uh, push. 
Never saw From Hell, though. I know the book is overwrought and really, really overrated, personally. Uh, huh, he did a mini Defiant Ones TV miniseries documentary. Broken City was uh, his last, was Alan Hughes' last movie, which was the Mark Wahlberg, Russell Crowe um, thriller about corruption and, uh, corrupt, you know, corruption in the local government. I have no idea. I have no idea if that's any good. I never saw it. Um, so I haven't seen, he's been doing, they do a lot of documentary stuff too, which is, which is, you know, good. Hey, they're good guys. They're good. You know, they're good at what they do. So, um, good for, you know, Hey, whatever they're doing, good for them. The final ones examines the partnership between Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre. A lot of stuff with Dr. Dre, too. Um, like, Alan Hughes directed uh, the I Need a Doctor music video as well. So, yeah, uh, Albert Hughes... Meanwhile, Albert Hughes is, do, is doing... Um, this is his kind of fir- fir- first major feature film as a solo uh, filmmaker. Uh, after he, uh, he also did... Uh, we the economy twenty short he he took part in the twenty short films you can't afford to miss, uh, which is an anthology of short short documentaries about economics, and he you also get credits for uh, there's like twenty one uh, directors credited John M Chu of uh, who just also who also uh, released a movie this weekend uh, director of Crazy Rich Asians, um, trying to rec- see if I recognize anyone else. Adam McKay apparently did a segment, um, and a lot of people I don't recognize. They must be documentarians, but uh, yeah, Adam McKay uh, did a segment on this. Adam Davidson, Cynthia Kaplan, uh, Marshall Curry, Heidi Ewing. So yeah, Al- uh, Albert Hughes took part in that, and then uh, this is his first real feature film after the Book of Eli. And what we've got here is essentially a quest for fire style story of proto man, like um, early Homo sapiens, sort of sur- trying to survive the ice age. And it stars Cody Smith McPhee, who you may recognize as Boy from the Road, and Nor- like literally that's his character's name, Boy uh, Norman, the voice of Norman from Paranorman, and he's currently. Uh, Kurt Wagner Nightcrawler in the um, uh, in the current uh, iteration of the X Men, and he was also the male lead in the remake of Let the Right One In, Let Me In. He's been a, he has a solid actor, and, is, and he's been you know he showcases just how good he is in this movie because he is. A, he carries this movie. It's all about him trying to survive. This is like his revenant. And sadly, I don't think it's going to get a lot of noteworthiness because he it's not it, it's been buried essentially by Sony Pictures, sadly. And he it doesn't deserve that because it's a good movie. It's a good and he is a gr- he gets a great performance, especially since he's his co-star is a wolf, which we'll get into. But yeah, Cody Smith McPhee is the main star in this. The other ones are minor uh, actors. I don't know if they've been in anything else. Uh, let me take a look. Alf, uh, let me see if I recognize anybody else from this. Uh, Cody Smith McPhee is the big one. Natasha Malta 
Lenor Varela, uh, Johannes Haukur, Johannes Johansson. Yeah, I don't recognize any of these people. Uh, Natasia Malta is was typhoid in Electra. Oof, and Ayane in Dead or Alive. Oh, Janine in Lake Placid. So this is uh, her last couple of things have been Assault on Wall Street, Battle Drone. This means war. Oof. In the name of the king to... Oh, no. Lotus Land Waitress in The Lightning... In Percy Jackson and The Lightning Thief. Oy vey. You don't deserve that. Uh, but yeah, she's... Unfortunately, she's also not very prominent. She's the mom uh, in this, so she's a minor character, sadly. Um, Lenore Varela uh, it was Nyssa in Blade Two, uh, Odd's mother in Odd Thomas. Oh, God, she's in something called Where God Left His Shoes. Oof. Murder in Mexico, the Bruce Beresford Redmond story. Interesting. Captive, Ride, Deseo. So she's been a couple of stuff, but she plays a shaman, essentially, and she's also a minor character. The only other major character is this Johannes Johannes Haukur Johansson. Uh, he's Icelandic. So he uh, he is Lem Lemoncloak. In Game of Thrones, and he was Yuri. Okay, I recognize him now. He was Yuri in Atomic Blonde. So yeah, I know him there. Um, I'm curious if he was in the Vi- in Vikings as well. There's a lot of I know there's a lot of Scandinavian actors and that. So it doesn't look like it. Oh my God, he was on an episode of Lazy Town. Ha! Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, he was his character's name was Chef Pablo Fantastico. Uh, Chef Rotten Food. That's a Oh my god, is that the one? Okay, no, that's not the one. Um, I don't think that's the one uh, where she does it's a, it's a piece of cake to bake a pretty cake song. I don't think that's the episode. But yeah, he's... Um, oh my god, he played Kane in the Noah movie. So yeah, this guy's been around for a bit. And he's kind of the other actor of note here. Where he plays uh, Cody Smith-McPhee's father... Uh, the tribal el- the tribal chief, and he is he's dynamite. He gives a good performance in this as well. But yeah, Cody Smith McPhee is unrecognizable. You would not know that was him this entire movie. I didn't recognize him at all. the The prosthetics and the makeup on the, in this on this movie is phenomenal. And then of course you've got the animal uh, acting. He does a great job working with this wolf, and he were I mean. Plenty of actors have acted alongside animals. Very rarely do they does it come across like there's sort of this this bond that you see. And Cody Smith McPhee is a natural at playing alongside this animal, and he does a great job. Um, like I said, there is uh, uh, there is some issue with that because the animal wrangler involved in this movie, John Scott, who was also involved with Lord of the Rings, uh, I think a river runs. Through it, um, let me f- try to find him. Name, search, try to find him. He's um, he's an animal wrangler mainly. So, here, let me go back to crew for Alpha. Full cast and crew. We want. Casting, production, set design, costume, makeup, 
uh, production, management, second unit, art department, sound, special effects, which is another one I want to get into once uh, once I get once I find this guy. Uh, Stunts, camera, animation, casting, costume, editorial, location, music, transportation, other crew. Here we go. It must be here. Uh, Yeah, we'll do this. Kevin Scott is under his second unit. Scott Ede, Scott Crab, Scott Neiman, Alicia Scott. He's not even listed. That's cr- that's weird. Hold on a second. Da-da-da, that's yeah. That's um, yeah. Basically, uh, Peta also got in on the action because the animal, uh, the American Humane Association, did denied the movie its. Uh, tag of uh, no animals were harmed in the making of this movie because their investigation revealed that the animal wrangler involved, which I saw as John Scott, but I'm not seeing his name tied to any... Yeah, really, yeah okay, yeah. It is still John Scott. Um, so, yeah. Uh, he's not listed in the in the credits for some reason. Apparently, but he's based out of Alberta, and he's got uh, he's got a really weird website. It feels like it's out of the early two thousands, probably because it is. Um, resume. Uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, he wa- he did horse stunts there. Legends of the Fall. Uh, Unforgiven. Days of Heaven. He deals mainly with horses. Uh, Aragon. He did horse stunt work, night, the Night of the Museum movies, Van Helsing. He was a second unit uh, co-coordinator. Uh, the X-Men 2, uh, he did Alberta Transportation. Um, Rat Race, Shanghai Noon, Snow Day. A um, couple of TV movies. Uh, this one's not listed for some reason. Oh, that would be why. Because it only goes up to 2008! That's how often this website is is updated. Oh, vey. Uh, apparently, he also worked on "Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee." So yeah, this guy's an Alberta-based uh, animal wrangler and stunt coordinator, and he doesn't seem to be have a main list like cast uh, cre- credit to his name. But uh, American Humane Association determined in their investigation after uh, activists brought it to their attention that five bison were killed and skinned during the making of this movie. Now, Scott, uh, in his, you know, Scott's defense was one of them was already, a couple, one of them was already dead, and a couple were already slated, and the rest were already slated for slaughter. So they just used that at, for their, um, for, 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 you know, they just used that, at the, you know, as their in to get the skins, which, did you, did you need to skin them? Like, isn't that what an art department and the, and the costume department is for? To create faux fur? Like, you, there's a means to recreate the bison fur without the killing of the bison. Like, 
we we've got this. We've we've learned this. This part of Hollywood. It doesn't need to be a hundred percent authentic. There's ways to mock up these things to make it look authentic. It doesn't need to be a hundred percent authentic in that regard. So it also turns out that uh, John Scott. This is not John Scott's first uh, run-in with controversy. He, uh, a couple of years ago, he was also um, rumored to have taken horses of his that he worked on productions with to slaughterhouses after filming. So this guy is not very uh, on the level. Uh, he just I, so I don't know why people could c- continue to work with him if he's not very trustworthy. But at the same time, I could do an entire episode about animal wrangling and the next major animal wrangling themed movie like a movie that deals a lot with animals on set i'll bring i'll probably make that a discussion uh, a discussion but yeah the animal wrangling industry in hollywood is very dubious at best so yeah it's it, it is but it has been denied the aha seal of approval of no animals being harmed during the making of this film and and unfortunately uh that's been a real real um controversy involving involving the production and it's a it's a sad mark it's you know it's kind of like um you know those instances it like with death cure and with deadpool 2 where uh somebody involved in the filming dies during it like the idea that you would like it's not the exact same because you know somebody in like the like the main actor dylan o'brien nearly died during the filming of death cure and a you know a stunt woman did actually die, but right below that, you know, the idea that you would kill animals for the sake of the movie, there's a reason the AHA has pushed for better standards from filmmakers because they don't want to go back to the days of Ben Hur where just horse carcasses could be piled up a mile high from all the deaths going on screen. You know, they, we don't want to do that anymore. There's no need to. So, so the, that's why the AHA investigates these things. And if they deny you the seal of approval, then that's a big deal because you obviously then then somebody wasn't paying much attention. And even the studio and even Studio Eight commented that they wanted to do their own internal investigation and find out what happened. But yeah, the AHA didn't. Their findings revealed Scott to be very much at fault. And apparently, there are people involved in the production who said Scott tried to cover it up. Which is always good, good, just always great news to find out. Oh yeah, <laughs> the guy involved that's giving us all this controversy. Apparently, he tried to cover up what he was doing because God knows if it was on the level, he wouldn't need to hide it from us. Ivy, all kinds of bad stuff. I don't know if that had anything to do with the delays or not, but yeah, this suffered a lot from delays, and that's a sad. That's sad because between the you know the delays and the controversy mar what is a genuinely good movie like there are a couple of things it's a weird bit where they flash back instead of just doing a linear story which doesn't make any sense and then at the very end there's a whole you know there's a there's a there's a trope i feel like is was kind of silly uh there's a lot of silliness in this movie but at the same time the silliness is met with um you know really tense thrills and action and so every you know Cody Smith McPhee carries this movie. He is excellent in it, and him working with the dog with the wolf is phenomenal. And unfortunately, 
it's because of these controversies and Sony not knowing what the hell they're doing that nobody's probably going to see this movie, sadly. And I and it's and it's terrible because the people who did put their heart and soul into this, Albert Hughes in his writing and direction, Cody Mc Cody McPhee in his acting and just all of the effects people and the makeup artists and all the people who work to make a phenomenal movie overall are going to are going to be going to suffer from having t- been tied to a flop because one they hired a wrangler who with, a, with who's already had a history of controversy and two their their parent company had no idea what the hell to do with the movie in fact they tried to market it as like a Goofy family comedy, like oh dear, here's a boy and his dog. No, it's it's like it's like a Jack London story. This is like the Gray with 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 cave people. So why not market it as that? Why are you trying to market it as a goofy, silly, need buddy comedy? Oh, they're just gonna try to find their way home. No, Cody Smith McPhee nearly dies in this movie multiple times. Not him, the actor, his his character, his character. Kata nearly dies several times during the course of this movie. It is tense. It is crazy. This is not a silly kid's film. This is not a fun romp for the entire family. This is a genuinely well-made Quest for Fire-style thriller and drama. Not some silly family comedy. This is an Alpha and Omega. So yeah, thanks for nothing, Sony. You have no idea what you're doing. Way to go, you blockheads. All right, I'll keep this one short because we are going over an hour with the reviews, and I do want to get into the discussion. Suffice to say that this month's Ghibli Fest was one that I've heard a lot about, namely Grave of the Fireflies. For some reason, I kept calling it Graveyard of the Fireflies, so I posted an Instagram video and a a Stardust um, uh, reaction because I forgot what it was actually called. Um, yeah, so this is another one from Isao Takahata. This is the second one I've seen from him. Of the two I've seen, I would I would rather rewatch Pompoko, but I feel like Rave of the Fireflies is a much better movie. I don't know. Um, this is based uh, and uh, during the during World War Two uh, as the Japanese are fighting off the American the Americans. And what it's mainly focusing on is a young boy, Seta, who is uh, trying to live up to the fact like his father was a Navy man. And unfortunately, their town is firebombed and they are forced to live with their family uh, a few towns over. And it's about just him not him trying his best to take care of his little sister, um... Why am I blanking on her name? Uh, his his uh, little sister, Setsuko. And he's trying to take care of her 
and maintain her childlike innocence in one of the dar- and during the just absolute harshness of war and just how terrible things seem to get. Like that's the whole thing. This movie is tragedy porn, namely that everything about it is just awful. Not in the bad, not like in bad quality, just like emotionally gut emotional gut punches every step of the way. Anything that anything bad that can happen does happen in this movie. It is heartbreaking to watch and I cannot imagine sitting through this more than once. Um uh but the main conceit of the movie is Seta like it opens with Seta's death and the movie is a flashback of him fu- revisiting what happened during the last uh months years of his life. And so that's where it kind of uh, starts with the a firebombing of his town. What was it? Uh, what is this town? Let me pull up the wiki. And go Grave of the Fireflies. For be- being based on a short story, they managed to make a feature length out of it uh, without too much of a problem. Um, Kobe. So yeah, they start in Kobe, and unfortunately, their town is firebombed, and initially, they they have no idea where their mom is, and they run into their aunt, um, and uh, who ends up taking care of them. Uh, does not say where uh, their new home is, um, but their home is more in the countryside uh, from Kobe. And their aunt is kind of emotionally abusive, like, like, like she she's the she's the one who kind of um, breaks breaks uh, the, the terrible news to Setsuko that Seta didn't want to break just yet. She's kind of resentful of the fact that, that that she has to take care of them, despite the fact that like she keeps saying, "How come you you know you're lazy? You don't do anything. You're not heroes like her daughter and her husband are." Who are trying to help the war effort. And despite the fact that, you know, they it's their mom's kimonos that help pay for rice rations. They, you know, it's, they, you see the ant is not only taking advantage of their plight, but also be treating them like they're a burden on her. And then, like, then, of course, the kicker is when they get grab their grab their stuff and run away. And move and move out, then and then are done with her. She's just like, oh, oh, you're leaving. Oh, be careful. Like, no, screw you, lady. You had your chance to t- to care about them. You were too busy abusing them and treating them like garbage. So nah, screw you. Um, but it's when it, so for so for months, Setsuko and Seta are living in an abandoned bomb shelter, and. He Seta is doing his best to try and 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 rate and keeps and keeps Setsuko well and alive, but they they fall ill from malnutrition. Seta really doesn't know what he's doing. Unfortunately, he's in way over his head, and unfortunately, he you know he as things go on, he he it, they reach the end of the war. He learns that Japan surrendered and that he may have lost his father as well. They don't know where he is. And then eventually, you know, just basically everyone ends up dying. And he, and it's just, he really, he, it just really is just like everything bad that can happen does. And it's awful. 
So it really is. It, it really does stink uh, to to see all of this terribleness happen to these poor kids. But I think that's kind of the beauty of it too. The fact that you see these kids trying to survive in this in this truly apocalyptic scenario. And just everything bad that can happen does for them, no matter what they try to do. And poor Seta is in over his head as much as you want to say, damn it, kid, why didn't you do this? It's like, that's not how children think. He's, tr- he's thinking on impulse. He's trying to, trying to lead a happy life for him and his sister. And unfortunately, everything crumbles around them. And it's just absolutely heartbreaking. I saw the uh, dubbed, the uh, not the dub. I saw the subbed version. Uh, I have no idea who is in the dub. Apparently, it's uh, depending on which version. The '98 version has uh, J. Robert Spencer and Rhoda Crosite. Crosite. I don't know either of them. Uh, but Veronica Taylor, voice uh, original voice of Ash Ketchum, is uh, is uh, is the mom. Uh, the 2012 Toho version has people I'm not familiar with. Emily Neves and Shelley Kayleen Black. Uh, Adam Gibbs, Marcy Banner. No idea who these who these actors are, so I can't say how the dub fares. But um, I will say, if you have the stomach for this kind of gut-wrenching drama and just heartbreak, you know, it's, it's definitely worth watching. It's a beautiful movie. Just that that you want you know it's kind of like in that same vein of schindler's list and um 12 years a slave it's good i can't imagine seeing it more than once just because i i don't know who has the emotional fortitude to sit through all of that terribleness happening you'd have to be have almost no empathy to be able to just sit there and not be moved by these move by this movie um so yeah it's it's also interesting to know where where the title grave of the fireflies comes from it's an interesting scene it's a beautiful touching moment but then the title drop is very very um foreboding so yeah grave of the fireflies is it's not the best from ghibli but it's another great movie from yusau takahata he's i think he's he's you know even though we've lost him he still his 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 work speaks for itself because you know it's, you've also got the main features of you know critiques of Japanese history sort of revisiting you know the good old days so to speak and not lionizing them but looking at the harshness and harsh realities of the situation and just telling really dramatic and heartbreaking stories ultimately so uh, Pompoko I think is more rewatchable but I think this is a better I don't know. I'd have to I'd have to sit down with both of them and compare them. Suffice to say that I we did, really did lose a powerhouse with uh, Isao Takahata's death because he's just an amazing filmmaker. And with that, uh, we're going to take a quick break and come back for the discussion of delayed releases. <laughs> You like horror films. You like gore. 
You want to hear four badass women discuss and dissect modern and classic horror films. Join us at Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, a good ghoul's guide to horror. Oh! On the gun, we can't have Don't read the Latin. Do you know that in the world of the insane, you will find a kind of truth more terrifying? an interesting topic that I'm surprised hasn't come up uh, before. Namely that, like, I've talked about release scheduling uh, at somebody's suggestion, but I didn't really, I don't think I've ever really talked about delays. Because that's the thing. Sometimes movies get delayed a lot. Scheduling and release, and the releasing of movies is a very fluid, you know, it's, it's fluid until it sets so to speak. So it can be it can be up to a month before release and then something something dramatic will happen and they'll have to scramble to to fix to fix things around. And so there are multiple reasons why movies will get delayed. And so I'm going to co- cover some of the main ones and then talk about whether or not a delay is a bad thing. So the main reasons for delays are reshoots and rewrites. Something will happen during the production of the movie, either uh, the director will want to change something around, a producer will have a different idea, and they'll want to reshape what the movie ends up being. So they'll go back for... Re- that was the whole thing with like the Justice League, was the whole going back for reshoots. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't think it helped the movie. I don't think anything could have helped that movie, sadly, though. That just everything leading up to it was was bad. So the idea, you know, So the idea of reshoots isn't a bad thing. Sometimes that'll sometimes reshoots will improve a movie. You can never tell. And unfortunately, audiences aren't going to know the difference. They don't know what the original product was looking like cuz we don't get to see that original product. We see what the final product is. So, the idea of reshooting isn't inherently bad. Um other times delays will happen because of competition. Like they don't want like I mentioned before during uh the Alpha review that there was a bunch of stuff coming around, coming out around that time. You know, you had big tentpole stuff already coming out. I mean, they pushed back uh, uh, Avengers this year to April, so there were people had to scramble to 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 switch around their releases because they didn't want to get screwed over by the juggernaut that was Infinity War coming out, and it's stuff like that will really screw up a movie. So. I'm, you know, it, it's very interesting to see it. So that, you know, so you've got distributors trying to plan out based on when the tent pulls are coming out, and to also do uh, counter programming. So they want to release a movie that counter programs against something else that's coming out around that same time, which is good because you don't want so many of the same genre coming out in the single weekend. That that cannibalizes itself, and and I don't, I, you know, I have no qualms with that. Uh, other times they'll just be shelved, just permanently shelved. Sometimes, you know, sometimes they'll be delayed for years at a time. Uh, big ones are just because the, either somebody runs out, distributors run out of money, they can't do anything. Uh, producers had get cold feet. There's a pro, there's a process done in Hollywood 
that most people don't really know about. Insiders uh, and people who follow the industry have a better idea of it. A lot of people don't get into, don't like it. That is essentially Hollywood's version of focused grouping, focus groups. They'll do test screenings of movies. Every studio does this, and it's their litmus test to whether or not the movie is going to be good. And I get why they do it. They want, they've spent millions of dollars on this investment. They want to be sure there's going to be a return on it. And if audiences aren't liking something, they want to go back and fix it. At the same time, I feel like that, that inhibits the process. Because good movies can come out outside of focus grouping. And all focus grouping does is give producers leeway to make whatever sweeping changes they want. It's the same thing with like, the you know, it's the same thing with every focus group. Focus groups are inherently untrustworthy. Because there was, oh, what was the thing, Adam? Adam ruins every, I'm so far behind on him. He's so phenomenal. I love his show so much. Uh, but Adam ruins everything. Adam Conover covered focus grouping. And the whole thing was, um, what was it? Uh, it was a big story about, uh, about, uh, uh, spaghetti sauce. Uh, what was it? Hold on. Here we go. Adam ruins everything. Spaghetti sauce. Ruined Spa Day. Donating canned foods to charity. Hint, why orange juice is totally unnatural. Uh, what was the spaghetti sauce study? No, what was it? Uh, coffee. There's the hot coffee case for McDonald's. Um, it's, I'm not finding the one I'm looking for, but essentially, hold on, let me try this. Spaghetti sauce, focus groups. There's this thing. There was, this, there was a study done, um, about involving spaghetti sauce. Um, Malcolm Gladwell, the, the, uh, there's no one perfect love. Lack of Pepsi sweetness and hit Moskowitz like a ton of bricks one day. <clears throat> okay, here. Sometime in the 1970s. This is from uh, Content Marketing Institute. Article by David Huffman. Sometime in the 1970s, Howard Moskowitz was commissioned to experiment to find the perfect level of sweetness for Diet Pepsi. At it, what would what the perfect Diet Pepsi would taste that would appeal to the largest audience. When data came back, it was scattered beyond belief. No bell curve or anything that would indicate the perfect level of sweetness. The answer to the lack of Pepsi, perfect Pepsi sweetness hit Moskowitz in the face like a ton of bricks one day over lunch. There is no one perfect level, only perfect levels. Moskowitz worked with Prego. He takes his revelation and applies it to the Prego sauce, which had only one flavor of spaghetti sauce at the time. Literally just one spaghetti sauce. Recognizing there was no one perfect sauce, he developed 45 types of spaghetti sauce for testing. 
Moskowitz varied each one by every way you could possibly vary tomato sauce, from level of sweetness, garlic, etc. Americans fell into three groups. Those who like plain spaghetti sauce, those who like chunky spaghetti sauce, and those who like spicy spaghetti sauce. So, what, what was his name again? Howard Moskowitz. Howard Moskowitz kind of broke down the idea that focus testing really doesn't work because there wasn't a way to perfectly market Prego spaghetti sauce. You had to get audience, you know, you can tell consumer, you can ask consumers what they want. Oh, no, what was, it was this, but it was also the coffee thing. Uh, coffee, I'm, I think I'm thinking of the coffee focus group testing. Uh, what was it? Uh, I'm not finding it. I'm finding plenty of other focus groups on coffee. But basically, there was like this study done. I think it was similar in the same vein as Moskowitz. The idea that if you ask consumers what they want, then they'll tell you what they think they want. But at the same time, what they really want is goes unsaid. Because people are biased to think that, oh, you tell me I want this thing, so I clearly must want that thing. Uh, but it, but in reality, they want their thing a different way. So, like, it's it's so asking people whether they like cream or sugar with their coffee when sometimes they just want it black, but they are afraid to say they like it black, so they'll say they like it with cream or sugar. And so people will focus group based, use the evidence based on what people tell them, but what people are telling them is not inherently what they want. Uh, Jim Sterling brought this up with video games as well because that's you'll find marketers saying, well, clearly people want first-person shooters, MOBAs, uh, and now currently Battle Royale games because that's clearly what the consumer is telling us what they that they want. No, they like one specific game of that genre. They are not going to jump ship to another one of that genre just because it's that same genre. They, they like that game. You know, they're not going to... And so marketers are trying to find patterns and they're implementing patterns where there are none ultimately. And so that's why focus group testing is is sort of just you know a flimsy way of trying to predict what is ultimately not all that predictable whereas a good marketer can just basically take a movie what you know find out where it's good points, highlight its good points and make those its selling points, you know? Uh, take take the bad movie from this week, Mile 22. You sell, it's Mark Wahlberg. You sell that it's Peter Berg. You sell that it's Eco Oase. Because if there are going to be, um, there are going to be those, uh, you know, those cult film buffs who know Eco Oase from the raid. So you emphasize Mark Wahlberg. You emphasize its action. You emphasize the connection to the likes of uh, Lone Survivor and Patriot's Day. That's how you market the movie. You don't need to focus test it so much. Uh, ideally, you wouldn't need to focus test it at all. You just, sh- ideally, you would just find like the other, you would have the producers show it to other producers of that same company or show it to like the interns or something and get like, I mean, it's good to have a wide swath of reactions to stuff, but ideally what you, Ideally, all you need is a couple of 
of outside eyes and viewpoints to be like, okay, I hear, I know this, 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 and this. Here's what I, I didn't like this, this, and this. And then, and then play around with that. I, I, or, or, you know, sometimes it's good to just f- take the final product. How you take the product, see how it's, you know, see how it's doing. Maybe not even, uh, maybe do like limited runs. See if it, I, I, th- I would be perfectly fine with, Having a limited run of a movie, seeing how it performs. If it's doing well, you release it wide. If it's not doing well, you bring it back. Maybe do an edit, and then you release that as its own. You release that as its own edit. Like here's the initial edit of this movie, and then here's the final edit from when they released it wide. Something like that. I know. I don't know. I don't know how much that would um, affect the cost of a movie any more than focus testing does. But uh, focus group testing is is not a good sign of whether a movie will do well. Like, could you have predicted that both of James Cameron's movies, Avatar and Titanic, would have been the highest grossing of all time? How, how do you predict that? There's no way to predict that. So, a movie... There was no way to predict that A Quiet Place would have done as well as it did in its, in its, in its whole run compared to its budget. When there are plenty of other horror movies... Like you know that that are in that same vein, yet that is the one that people gravitated towards. You cannot always predict these things, and unfortunately, when it's when you're dealing with millions upon millions of dollars, tens of million, hundreds of million, it's it's it, you know there you see where the reliance on focus testing is because these people are skittish. Produce Hollywood producers are a cowardly lot. <laughs> uh, what's the Batman? T- what's uh, superstitious and cowardly lot? Yeah. Hollywood producers are a superstitious and cowardly lot. They would they would just as soon cast the bones, uh, a la a la a, a tribal shaman or like ancient Rome, to pre- try and predict whether or not a movie would make money. <laughs> they they really are. It, it really is just a, a gamble ultimately. And unfortunately, some studios try to hedge their bets on whether or not something's going to be successful or some. Some things are easy to predict. If it's part of the MCU, it's going to at least be somewhat... It's going to be somewhat successful. You can never predict how well an MCU movie is going to do, but most of them have at least made their money back. So that's why people are relying more on brands, because they're recognizable. Because people are sadly more willing to recognize a, a, a known quantity than an unknown quantity. So, yeah, that's, that's a discussion for another day, though. Um... Suffice to say that I, I have a, I take on bridge with the idea of focus grouping your movie to try and make it the best for all audiences. Ideally, what you want is to make a movie of a genre, sh- maybe show it to people who are fans of that genre, see how they like it, and then if it works, release it. If they don't like it, find out what they don't like about it and try to make it more in line with what they like about that genre. Because I think when you focus on the genre of the movie and making it appeal to those fans and those audience goers, that's where you'll be successful. Like, it doesn't matter if a movie's any good. If it appeals to the genre that people gravitate towards, they'll go and see it. Case in point, uh, the Mamma Mia movies. It doesn't matter that the movies aren't technically good. It appeals to that sensibility of the rom-com and fans of musicals and fans of ABBA. It works for what they want. Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, parts of it are very rote uh, rom-com elements. And yet, 
by by emphasizing certain aspects of the movie, you get something that's that differentiates it enough from other rom coms while still maintaining its its categorization as a rom com. So a good you know so if you appeal to the elements of the, that work with the genre. That's what people. That's where you'll find success. That's why Marvel has kind of built things down to a formula. Their formula may not work for everybody, but the formula has proven to work for their movies. So they'll deviate in certain aspects, you know, whenever it's whenever it's you know reasonable. But for the most part, they do follow that formula because that's what the people have shown that they wanted. That's what the fans of the genre have shown that they wanted. So, uh, let's move on to some other uh, reasons for delays. Namely, real-world events. Uh, So, you'll have, like I mentioned before, the onset accidents of uh, Dylan O'Brien and uh, Maze Runner Death Cure. I I don't think Deadpool got delayed. Uh, I think they trucked right through that. But Titanic was actually delayed. Uh, James Cameron's Titanic was delayed several months because of people's onset illnesses from filming in uh, freezing water. In fact, much like Avatar, people predicted the Titanic would have flopped because of all the troubles going on on set. People said the same thing about Jaws, too. It's very interesting. I doesn't correlate. A bad filming doesn't always correlate to a good movie. But hey, some of the best movies can come from the hell. You know, can come from hellish, you know, productions. Apocalypse Now. There's an entire movie dedicated to how terrible Apocalypse Now's production went. And yet, on the opposite of the spectrum, you've got The Island of Dr. Moreau. Just as awful of a production, making a terrible movie. The 90s one, to be specific, with Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando. Uh, another big one, terrorist attacks. So many move, especially with the rise in notable terrorist attacks, you're seeing... Major, sh- they were major shifts from Hollywood. Especially uh, if you want a good, if you want a good example of this, look into uh, Lindsay's uh, loose cannon on 9/11. Lindsay Ellis is Lindsay Ellis did a loose cannon on the nine on the effects of 9/11 on film, uh, and covered this specific topic in I believe part two, maybe part one. Uh, but movies like Men in Black Two and Lilo and Stitch. Both had to be uh, re, re, you know, delayed and go through rewrites and reshoots. Um, well, for redraws for Lilo and Stitch's case, uh, but specifically uh, the sequence where they're going through the mountains of, of Hawaii. That was supposed to be a city street. They were supposed to be going through the city, and Stitch was supposed to be flying an airplane, not a spaceship. So Disney, after the events of nine eleven. Because this was 2002, remember, Lilo and Stitch came out. Uh, about the same time that Men in Black 2 came out as well. Uh, but after the, terrorist atta- after the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center, Hollywood tried, did their best to, to edit out anything that had to do with the World Trade Center, which is, me- which is the case for Men in Black. The final showdown featured the World Trade Center, so they re-edited it and reshot it to, to make it deal with the Statue of Liberty instead. And with Lilo and Stitch, anything to do with airplanes uh, coming into cities. They did not want anything to remind people of the attacks. So so they were scrambling. Like, there was a whole thing with um, uh, Spider- the original Spider-Man was, had advertising that dealt with the Twin Towers. And even, even had uh, 
marketing that dealt with the Twin Towers. And then after the attacks, they had to go through some scrambling to just, you know, un, you know, you know try to step away from that. And even included that scene of, you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. Sort of like a New Yorker solidarity aspect. That came post 9-11. Uh, at least uh, most people postulate. Uh, not only that, you've also got phone booth, which was du- which was delayed after an actual sniper attack uh, dur- that was about the time of release. And then Gangster Squad was another case where it was set to release. It featured a th- movie theater shooting uh, in the trailer, which I think the scene was ultimately cut. And the movie was delayed because it was set to release after the Aurora movie theater shooting. So just. Sometimes you can't predict, once again, sometimes you just can't predict what's going to happen and a movie has to be delayed because what it's dealing with is happening in the, in, in the, in the, in the world around people and they don't want it to seem in poor taste. Same thing happened with, uh, some, some, same thing will happen with natural disasters. You see this a lot in anime. Um, Pokemon, I don't know specifically, there are several episodes that were delayed, that were banned, um, that had to do with natural disasters. Uh, specifically, uh, there's a there's a Hoenn season arc episode that dealt with the Whiskash that used earthquake, and it was right after a major earthquake in Japan, so they banned the episode. And I believe another one had that same problem where they dealt with uh, earthquakes. I think in um, Kalos and that arc, there's another one that dealt with a uh, earthquake using Pokemon. So, and I, and that was right around the time of another major earthquake that devastated uh, Japan. So they cut the episode altogether. Um, but Clint Eastwood's movie Hereafter dealt with a tidal wave. And, and during the tidal wave in 2006, that movie was delayed in uh, Eastern releases uh, at, at, you know, to, to, so as not to seem in poor taste with the tragedy. And of course, uh, you've also got tragedies like the death of a cast member, specifically with Fast and Furious 7. You know, somebody dies mid, you know, mid production, you have to stop. You sometimes you'll have to scramble and try to try to throw things around. That's how Fast and Furious 7 became about a tribute to Paul Walker, whereas initially it was going to be more in line with a regular Fast and Furious movie. But after the death of Paul Walker, they wanted to pay tribute to his, you know, to his death and to his character and to his connection to the franchise. Uh and of course, you've also got financial troubles. That's a big one. MGM movies were delayed for for several months, if not years. Specifically, uh, Red Dawn, the remake, uh, was delayed because MGM went through bankruptcy. They couldn't afford to release the movie. So sometimes you'll find that where the production company just can't afford to release the movie, and they can't and they can't make any deals with distributors. So they'll stop mid production, and the movie will just be delayed until they can find the money. And of course, you got other things like there are sometimes union strikes that'll interfere with the production. Uh, and so that whenever there's something like that 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 deals with the industry itself, that will you'll see delays stem from that as well. Uh, sometimes it's legal. Sometimes there are just legal issues with the movie uh, rights. You know the, who has the distribution rights. Product. You know who has who. You know who is set to make the money from the release of the movie. Sometimes. You'll find uh, companies go to court over that. Um, I know. Remember, I remember John Turturro's movie *Romance and Cigarettes*. Uh, I believe is what it was. Well, I think that's what it was called. Uh, he, it was his directorial debut. It was like his passion project, 
and he came into a he he ran into a uh into a legal dispute with the company behind with the company that was helping him produce the movie and he ended up uh releasing it out of pocket just because he, he uh yeah romance and cigarettes he was set to release he, everything was doing all right and then uh Everything kind of went to hell, and, the, and rights issues came into question, and who was going to make the money from it. Totoro didn't like what was going on, so he ended up releasing the movie out of pocket. And and then you've got uh, just ultimately creative differences uh, between the filmmakers and the studios. So they'll sue for who has the rights to control what. And so those court battles will delay a movie, sometimes indefinitely, until the legal proceedings are done, which could take years. I, I, what was the one that there was one that uh, took like nine years because of legal battles? Let me see. Um. Oh, uh, currently, uh. Uh, well, actually, here's a fun one. Johnny Depp was was slated to do a movie about the investigation of uh, Big, Biggie and Tupac's uh, murders, co-starring Forrest Whitaker. And unfortunately, there's a um, there's a trial going on dealing with Depp committing assault against one of the uh, one of the production one of the uh, p- production crew members. Um, let me see. If I can find out the the uh, actual person, da-da-da-da. injury proceed jury proceedings, which would be in mid October. Doesn't say who. Skate the potential Fantastic Beats PR nightmare denied denied an attempt to push back the trial over his twenty five million dollar fraud lawsuit against his former business managers. Oh, it's not even tying into his assault on the set of, uh, what's it called? City of Lies. There's a lawsuit there that alleges he punched one of the film, one of the, one of the crew members. So that movie is being delayed indefinitely. Meanwhile, Depp is also in legal trouble with his money people, money people. And that's tying into the, his, his ties to the, the new Harry Potter spinoff. Which, he did not need to be in that at all. We didn't need another precursor to Voldemort. We didn't need more of that stuff. We had it with Harry Potter. I seriously would have accepted a freaking David Attenborough-style nature documentary with Newt Scamander investigating various various wild animals in the magical world and interacting with the wizards around them. That would have been interesting. We don't need more of the wizarding stuff from the Harry Potter franchise. We got eight movies of that. Um, trying to find, okay, here we go. Uh, 16 delayed movies. Uh, I found, I found out about it from a, wait, no, that's a bad one because, uh, it's unfortunately not, uh, oh, mm, how long did that take? Oh, oh, wow. There's a better one. It took 11 years for this one to happen. Shot, no, not 11 years, 2005. Uh, 
what is this? Uh, Kenneth Lonergan. What movie did he make? Kenneth Lonergan. Uh, writer of You Can Count On Me, which was uh, indie drama from 2000. He also did Manchester by the Sea and Gangs of New York. Margaret was the movie, which featured Anna Paquin. Um, so Matt, Mark, Matt Damon, Anna Paquin, Mark Ruffalo, Kieran Culkin, Allison Janney. Um, apparently, uh, there are gag orders and lawsuits. <laughs> Kept much of the story under wraps, but a picture emerges of Lodigan struggling to find the movie in the edit. Revolving door of editors culminating in the regular Martin Scorsese snipper, uh, Thelma Schoonmaker, stepping in to try and help Lonergan. So there was, yeah, this whole thing underwent six-year legal battle that involved Martin Scorsese and film financier Gary Gilbert having to take the witness stand at a trial over the rights to release this movie. Um... Uh, follow up to his, this was initially going to be his follow up to the Academy Award nominated film You Can Count on Me. Uh, the movie in 2005, the movie looked promising enough, whereby Fox Searchlight and Gilbert came to an agreement to split about 12.6 million in production costs. Gilbert previously produced Garden State and the Kids Are All Right, as well as the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers basketball team at the time. Oh, wait, Dan Gilbert? Gary Gilbert. I thought Dan Gilbert owned the Cavs. Maybe Gary owned them before. Um, Butcher Photography Command. Eventually, Lonergan delivered a final cut around 2007. Gilbert had become unhappy with the results, and according to Lonergan's side, attempted to seize control of the film despite not having cutting rights as an investor. Gilbert considered the two-and-a-half-hour film at that point to be incoherent. So they filmed... So they sued each... So, so I believe... So it looks like Gilbert sued uh, Lonergan... To, for uh, cutting right for editing rights to the film, and Lonergan didn't want it that way. Or Lonergan seemed to sue um, for to maintain his uh, his cut of the movie. Uh, Lonergan says the written consent was never given. Gilbert later pointed out that some eight hundred thousand dollars would be required to do sound editing. That the the. Gilbert and Searchlight would come to a settlement with each other, and in 2011, Lonergan's initial cut was released, an extremely limited release. So, I mean, yeah, they'll they'll just be lawsuits that keep a movie from being released. I forget what the nine... There was a nine-year uh, de- delay in release for a movie that was all because... Uh, you know, just, just arbitration. Everyone, you know, they're debating you know, all the lawsuits... Uh, going on. Eight famous movies and the lawsuits that plagued them. Captain Phillips, the crew of the MV Maersk, Alabama versus Waterman. Uh, Drive, Sarah Deming versus Film District. Not sure what that one's about. That seems to be after the fact, though. Hangover Part 2, S. Victor Whitmill versus Warner Brothers over copyright infringement. Borat, Justin C.A., and Christopher Rotunda versus Sasha Baron Cohen, 20th Century Fox. Black Swan, Eric Glatt ver- and Alexander Footman et al. versus Fox Searchlight. Uh, accounting, it seems to be, uh, failed to receive any pay or credit. Uh, Natural Born Killers, 
uh, one of the violent crimes after watching Oliver Stone's. Oh, there's one that ties into um, people enacting something based on the movie. Uh, William Roger Dean versus James Cameron, 20th Century Fox, album cover artist uh, over copyright infringement, Luxo versus Walt Disney Company. All right, I can't seem to find the movie that was like delayed nine years, uh, but suffice to say that yeah, there, sometimes legal troubles will plague a production, and people will want their their fair shake, and they, they, or they'll feel slighted, and they'll file suit against uh, either a studio or a person involved in the production for, you know, uh, uh, compensation. Um, So I guess that leaves us to uh, decide and define whether or not that delaying a movie is a bad thing. And I think it, it, it depends like I said, sometimes movies are delayed for good reason. Um, sometimes it can just be... Uh, like, think about this. Jurassic World was delayed for nearly a decade. And it turned out to be the most uh, successful version, successful entry in the franchise. Uh, Star, Wars, Star Wars movies have been delayed. Uh, they're delaying Indiana Jones production for the time being. Uh... And sometimes, you know, just delays happen. Life happens. And you can't always predict uh, if a delay is going to hinder a movie or not. That said, depending on the reasoning behind the delay, it's definitely not good. And I think what what's worse is that we have unprecedented access to the production process. People are, there are entire film sites and news outlets dedicated to commenting on the daily, almost daily production uh going you know production events of 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 certain movies especially big name movies there'll be people wanting to comment on every little detail of a production as it happens so we have more knowledge of how these movies are getting made and where and they're trying to play off and some people will try to play off delays as like uh oh what's going on is this a bad sign and unfortunately you can't always tell Delays will happen, but you can't always predict whether or not a delay is for good or for bad. Uh, in the case of Sony, however, their Slenderman movie did get delays because they couldn't find a distributor for it. Which is a whole other issue, is that sometimes distributors aren't signing on and the, and the production company has to wait until they can find somebody willing to, willing to distribute the film. So... So, unfortunately, news outlets will play off trivialities as, like, big, life-changing events for a production of a movie. But you can't, you know, if you heard the goings-on of the Jaws production, most people probably would never have watched it. Because they would have expected, oh, man, that production was terrible. Like, everything bad that could happen did happen. And yet, it's one of the best movies ever made. It defined the blockbuster as a genre. So... Delays aren't always a bad thing. Why a movie is delayed is probably a probably a good sign of whether or not to expect good things or bad things. And who is doing the delaying? Like if Sony's delaying a movie, it, it, it I, I I'm calling that into question. Whereas if a Disney or a Warner Brothers 
are are delaying a movie, yeah, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it's something going on that we're not privy to. Um, it's hard to say uh, whether or not the delay will hurt or or benefit the movie. Ultimately, it's all a gamble. But I will say this: the longer a movie is delayed from release, the worse it's going to happen for it. Even if the movie is good, the longer you delay it. The less, the less return on investment, because people can only wait for so long for something. You can't always predict, unless it's like a name brand quantity like the Jurassic Park franchise or Star Wars. If it's an independent movie, the longer it's delayed, the worse it's probably going to be. So that about does it for the discussion portion. Suffice to say that delays can be can be a good thing if it's for the benefit of the produ- of the overall quality of the movie, but. It all depends on the circumstances, ultimately. So, with that in mind, let's take a let's take a gander at the box office. And now the popcorn junkie checks in with this week's box office report. Normally, I'd have a Patreon corner, uh, but this week I had trouble getting things up. I'm pr- already planning ahead for next week, so uh, we I couldn't do Caveman or. Uh, uh, the Raid Redemption, sadly, for either entities, but I'm hoping to do better promotion of the Patreon episodes, and I'm also hoping to get them done earlier, especially since we're going to be pretty busy this coming week. Um, so, this, so hopefully, as long as I can get them done early enough, I'm going to be looking at Short Circuit for Make a Better Movie to tie into Axel, and... Uh, Muppet Treasure Island to tie into the Happy Time Murders, uh, as they were both directed by the same person. Fun story. Uh, so with that being said, let's take a look at this week's box office. Uh, we've had three major releases. All three of them are in the top five, so we're going to be talking about them. Um, uh, who uh, uh, Dropping out of the top seven this week are uh, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. And the spy who dumped me, both are out, as well as Slenderman. So Hotel Transylvania three is still maintaining its its uh its position at number nine, but Mamma Mia two dropped. Uh, spy who dumped me dropped even behind the Equalizer two, and and Slenderman dropped out uh, just barely to down to number eight. And it's already doubled its budget, so uh, any time after this, it's all, it's going to be profit. So even after, even though it sucks, people are still seeing it. So what, what, there you go. Anyway, this week at number seven, we have Black Klansman bringing in seven million dollars, bringing its total uh, gross up to twenty-three million domestically, and an extra nine uh, one point nine million uh, from the foreign market. So just about $25 million. So it's still, it's made back its budget still needs a, still a good ways to really be profitable, but it's doing well enough for two weeks. Uh, so black Klansman is doing all right for itself. And that's good that people are supporting it. Dropping down from number three to number six is Disney's Christopher Robin, which brought in $8.8 million this weekend, bringing it, Total domestic gross up to sixty-six million, and its and its global gross up to eighty-nine point six million dollars. And it doesn't list its budget on uh, Box Office Mojo, so let's take a look at the wiki. 
around 70 to 75 million dollars so it's it's underperforming considering the overall on on you know it's made back its budget but it's not a success it's not a runaway success so it's not a flop but it isn't a success either so it i I think it's just people i mean it's an august release for one thing people have already spent most of their money on the big tentpole releases and i think disney's live action movies just aren't really i mean the only one that really only ones that are really doing well are things like beauty and the beast which have um which which already have their own their own fan base built in so People were willing to support that again, whereas they don't know if this Winnie the Live Action Winnie the Pooh is going to be any good. And even though people are saying, hey, it's pretty good, they're still kind of holding off on it. So we'll see if it ends up getting any more money from the foreign markets. Definitely being hit by China because Xi Jinping has been compared to Winnie the Pooh. So whoopsie, so much for the Chinese markets. Premiering at number four this week. Wait, there seems to, uh, there's a tie. Four and five, we have a tie. Actually, so tied at number four are Mission Impossible Fallout and Alpha, which both brought in $10.5 million, which brings Mission Impossible's uh, budget uh, uh, gross domestically up to $180 million. And it's foreign market and combined with the foreign release, it's a $500 million gross so far. So it's made back its money. No problem. It's good. Unfortunately, Alpha only brought in $10.5 million, and there is no word on the foreign releases. So it cost $51 million to make. So Sony's delays and burying it in August did it no favors, and that's a shame. So this is slated to be one of their big flops, which sucks for Studio 8, which I think is a fairly fledgling studio. I think this is one of their first release. No? They're tied to Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle. That's Sony Columbia. That's all Sony Columbia. Where's Studio 8? Hold on. What is this Studio 8? Uh, about... Yeah, they're also doing White Boy Rick with Sony Pictures as well. Filmmaker-driven company focused on building long study relationships, blah, blah, blah. Okay, no, they did other stuff. They did uh, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk with Ang Lee, another Sony. They're partnered with Sony for the most part. Uh, let's take a look at their wiki. See what else they – see if that's all they've done. All right, let's go to Alpha – Studio 8 is not, doesn't have a Wikipedia page. That is not a good sign. Hold on. Macromedia Studio 8, defunct development studio in Capcom, of Capcom USA. Wow, this company doesn't even have its own wiki page. Shows how much they, shows how much they matter. So yeah, for being tied to uh, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, Alpha, and then hopefully White Boy Rick does well, or else Studio 8 is is probably going to be doomed. Uh, Who knows? We'll see. But yeah, those have tied at number four with $10.5 million. 
Premiering at number three is Mile 22, which brought in $13.6 million. And let's see how much this bad boy cost. Budget cost $35 million. Uh, did, it, did it break any more money from the foreign markets? $538,000. Where did it show? Doesn't list where doesn't list the countries, just the total. So they're already planning a sequel. It cost thirty-five million dollars, and it's already it's only it's only made it's made less than half that its opening weekend. That's not to say that it won't make its money back, but hopefully, well, what else we got? Uh, Axel Happy Time Murders, Kin, Operation Finale, which is about uh, hunting of. What's his name? Uh, Gehring? Adolf Eichmann uh, by the uh, Israeli uh, oh, Mossad uh, in Argentina. So, I, and I think it's if I if I if I'm not mistaken, it is Ben Kingsley, half Indian actor, uh, Indian Indian British uh, descent actor, best known for playing Gandhi, is slated to play Adolf Eichmann. Also features Nick Kroll. This is going to be interesting to watch. Uh, but it features Oscar Isaac as the uh, Mossad agent tasked to bring down Eichmann. Uh, but yeah, pretty soon we've got uh, pep- we've already got Peppermint and Predator in the next after August. So unless they can make back its money, so it's already got competition coming up. Not soon enough, sadly. So if there's action junkies out there, they'll probably support this still. But hopefully it drops out of the top seven pretty soon. Uh, so yeah. Uh, number two, dropping down from number one is the Meg, which brought in twenty one twenty one million dollars this weekend, which brings its total domestic gross up to eighty three million dollars, and its four and combined with the foreign gross, brought in three hundred fourteen million dollars. Let me guess, China. Let's see, Brazil. Uh, China gave it fifty million dollars. What a shocker. So yeah, China's carrying this movie to success. They, I, hey, placated the China really does help. Apparently, thought that this was on its way out, but nah, still doing strong. Ah well, ah well, whatever. People like it. Who cares? Uh, apparently, people are finding it more enjoyable as a dumb bad movie, but uh, you know, like a fun bad movie, so to speak. But eh, it wasn't fun for me, sadly. Uh, and there were some fun moments, but the movie itself was too dull and stupid to be that much fun. Uh, and then premiering at number one this weekend with $25 million is Crazy Rich Asians, uh, which actually combined with its Wednesday release uh, earned $34 million combi- and then had an extra 700000 from the foreign markets. Wait, what's it? Where is it playing? What else is it playing? It's not listing who the who the who the other countries are. You'd think it'd play well in China, but China, Korea, Japan—that whole that whole Eastern Asian market—I don't know. But hey, it made back its budget opening weekend, so that's a good sign. All it has to do now is double that, and it's good. So. Premiering at number one, that's great. And making back its budget uh, opening weekend combined with its Wednesday release was great. Fantastic. 
Oh, that's so good to see. Dog Days couldn't even break a, a million dollars this weekend. Oh, joy. Good. Screw that movie. Teen Titans Go has also dropped precipitously. It's, it's, it, it made back its money, uh, so it's technically profitable. But, but yeah, it, I'm, I'm glad. The, the only one I'm kind of sad about is 8th grade is still dropping. Um, which is, which kind of stinks because it, because it definitely, uh, warrants being seen. So yeah, crazy, good for crazy rich Asians. It, we'll see how it does in the long run. Hopefully as it, as it's distributed to more foreign markets, it'll, we'll see a rise in profits for it because it deserves it. So with that being said, let's, uh, that, that was our box office report, which means next up we have the trailer talk. Coming this summer. It's Trailer Talk. Rated R starts Friday. This weekend's going to be interesting. Uh, this weekend we see the release of the another boy and his dog story. This time it's a robot dog, Axel. Uh, we've also got the Happy Time Murders, uh, which is the... Uh, pup, you know, raunchy puppet movie, and we've got Searching featuring John Cho in a sort of unfriended style screen recorded thriller. So, first up, let's take a look at the uh, well, here, let's take this. I use uh, the numbers which le- release which lists the releases alphabetically. Let's take a look at um, IMDb, they usually li- they, they tend to list things in a matter of uh, what what is expected to be big. So, all right then. Let's start off with the ha- the big, the main release they're pushing, The Happy Time Murders. Like I said, directed by the director of not only A Muppet Christmas Carol, but A Muppet, but Muppet Treasure Island, Brian Henson, son of the late Jim Henson. So, let's take a let's take a look at thank the one Green Band trail, the first Green Band trailer I could find because damn, they're pushing the raunchiness. Seriously, like almost every trailer I could find that came up in the search was Red Band. It's actually not too bad, uh, full body puppet work. The director of Muppet Christmas Crescent Muppets Tonight. Yeah. It's finally ready to reveal what goes down when kids aren't around. Hey, handsome. You looking for some rotten cotton? I'm a woman. That's okay. Yeah, that's even <laughs> a good time for you. <laughs> you two are the most decorated officers in this department. What do you say? Looks like a robbery gone wrong to me. This wasn't a robbery. This was a hit. Welcome. Someone out there <gasps> is killing puppets. Oof. Harry. What? <laughs> respect for the dead. Miss Lunch. We're gonna this summer, we did these murders. His bodies are gonna no sesame. All street cops I've ever seen. Oh, well, you're no baggage yourself. I, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say thank you to that. Uh, I thought this was a green band. This, I to edit that. Damn it! Isn't always warm and fuzzy. I'm gonna go crazy. Seriously, this is the Green Band trailer, and it's still dropping the stuff I can't put in the show. Listen, McCarthy. I'm not doing this. Do it. (laughs) 
sorry about your dead human friend, Phillips. Oh man, this is gonna take a lot of editing for this. This is a green band. He's servicing a client. Is that what I think it is? I love Maya. She needs better roles. She is she's just the best. I love Maya Rudolph so much. So yeah, I'm gonna have to do some editing for that trailer. That was the Green Band. That was listed as the Green Band trailer from movie clips. Yeah. Uh, oh man. Oh boy. So I'm hoping I'm hopeful for that. I hope it's good. I want it to be good. I love playing around with stuff like that. I lo- I want to see puppetry make a comeback and be in more stuff and be more do more interesting things with it. So we'll see if this is just raunchy for the sake of raunchiness and how well it plays and how well just how well of a movie it makes. It could I don't expect it to be the full on Roger Rabbit for puppets, but I'm interested to see how Brian Henson pulls it out. Uh also, that's another movie plagued with a lawsuit, this time by HBO for, uh, as the owners of Sesame Street. The Sesame Workshop sued for the term, for using the marketing term, all, no Sesame, all street. So they won that lawsuit, thankfully. So we'll, it, that, which is a, one of the weirdest lawsuits I've ever seen. Brian Henson, son of the late Jim Henson, got sued by one of his dad's major uh, company, the, one of the major companies he helped found. Because of a reference to their name. And I think that's part of it has to do with the HBO thing. HBO wanted to try to protect its brand as though people actually were going to be tricked by the terminology, by a joke in a trailer for the movie. Ugh. So yeah, next up, we're taking a look at the another boy, a boy and his robot and dog, RoboDog, uh, Axel. He's extreme! Someone there? I will say, the effects are pretty alright. I'm curious to see how much this cost. It seems to be mostly animatronic, and then there's... There's some additional CG elements. Unless this is all CG. Axel, the latest in military protection. Featuring facial recognition, onboard weapon systems, and owner pairing capabilities. It's paired now. The key gives them control of the entire project. You wanna play? Yeah. Alright, let's go. I'm getting monster truck vibes from this. Getting real monster trucks vibes. Show you something. I know that chick. You can talk to it. Yeah. Stay. You a good boy. You just obey everything I said. Flip it. Somebody spent a lot of money on him. They gotta be looking for him. I don't think his owner deserves it. Becky G. Where do I know that? I need to know what it's doing. It's evolving way beyond expectation. That's my dog. I want him back. Launch the drones. I'm curious about that. It definitely feels... I'm seeing ties to, like, Chappie and Short Circuit again, because it looks like that's another Indian uh, programmer who helped design the dog. You gotta stay down, all right? That's who she was. Trini from... uh, 
from Power Rangers. Apparently she's a she's a singer. Uh, she's also on Empire as well. We're in this together. Yeah, this is straight up monster trucks. Only with some better uh, effects. Oliver Daly. All right, now, what has he been in? Oh, God, there is, there's that City of Lives movie that's probably never coming out. Because Johnny Depp can't keep his hands to himself. Uh, his last thing was... That's right, his last thing was something called Miles. Which is about motocross. So, that's where the extreme... That's where the extreme uh, uh, sports comes in. Uh, who's the dude in this again? We've got Thomas Jane. Thomas, ooh, Thomas Jane. Ted McGinley. Uh, who's the dude, though? Alex Neustadter. Uh, best known for Ithaca, Colony, and Walking Out. No idea who this guy is. Never heard of any of these things. Apparently he was young Christian Award on an episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So, uh, yeah, I have no idea who this kid is. He's definitely not selling me in this trailer. Becky G sounds like dead. Like, she's like, ah, fine. She's like, it's like her dad agreed to, for her to be in the movie. And she's like, fine, I'll read the lines. Oh. Could be an empire right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, Thomas Jane, uh, Ted McGinley. Who's the dude? Eric. Eric Etabari uh, seems to be the... Nope, that's somebody else. That's That seems to be one of the uh, uh, agents out to try and, bring, try and bring the dog back. Who's the... Alex McNichol? Fox Racing fan. Oh, that's great. Uh, Joanna, Pam, Sam Upton? Is that the dude? No, that's something else. Um, I'm not seeing who the creator is um some dude is mm, maybe, maybe this is it dominic reigns uh bu, bu, bu. yeah iranian uh so yeah he's he's uh seems to be in a bunch of um oh he was also on agents of shield interestingly enough uh he had the role of cassius i'm so far behind on that but yeah so he's a middle eastern actor so that's where I'm getting... So it's not... It's a bit... It's not the exact same as, like, Death Patel and Chappie or um, the really racist stereotype from Short Circuit. But there is that same element there. Middle Eastern, not the same as Indian, but that same region seeming to be the, that guy... That that, re, that that sort of, you know, Indian subcontinent, uh, Middle, Middle Asia sort of... Uh, character creating a robot that the kid finds and that they help him to protect it from the big bad evil corporation. So yeah, we'll see how bad this is uh, come come this weekend. And then finally, one that I'm interested to see, uh, John. anything with John Cho is great. More John Cho is always a good thing. So let's take a look at uh, John Cho in uh, the sort of unfriended styled thriller Searching. What else? The Sundance. What is it? Yeah. I haven't been able to reach Margot. When was the last time you saw her? Hello, Margot. The study group only went till nine. I think we're gonna go late. No, she definitely left that. Where did Margot? Interesting trailer. Mention anything unusual? Was she acting strange? 
Yeah, I like this. How did David respond? These problems usually start in the household. Dad did it. Mr. Kim, is everything okay? Everything is great. Margot and I are. Oh snap! In her car. You felt bad about. Worthy of Hitchcock. She was my best friend. Oh my god. Told me she ran away. I didn't know her. I didn't know my daughter. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for that. It, that 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 trailer is even better. Um, that's also Sony Pictures. So yeah, this Sony Pictures is like cannibalizing itself, releasing they're releasing movies week after week. How do they expect to? How do they expect to make any money back if all they're doing is just like dumping everything in August? Damn it, Sony! Damn it! Damn it! But hey, this looks good. I don't. I'm expecting it didn't cost. It can't have cost that much. Most of those. The only thing that probably cost them money is John Cho. Uh, so I'm hopeful that does well. Uh, I'm hopeful it's good. That's the main thing. So we'll see about those come next week. And that about does it for this week, which means it is time for the plugs. If you are listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, be sure to favorite us at GumbyCatNetworks. Check out all of our other fine programming. In fact, coming out tomorrow is going to be the next episode of my other podcast, Living in the Stacks, which I do with a bunch of my friends from college, plus mod... Um, uh, uh, mod from mod, Macintosh and Mod, the, who do the pony stuff, which I'm also slated to return to. So if you like me over on mod, Macintosh and Mod, you can expect me to return later on in the series for another rarity episode. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just I'm kind of I'm kind of glad I'm talking about ponies again. It it, it I, I I love the show. It was the fandom that kind of alienated me from it. Uh, but I'm liking what I'm seeing so far from the current season. But I'll talk about that more when I return to Macintosh and Mod. But if you want to hear me and, um, uh, although Diana will not be on this week's episode, uh, Mod, uh, she'll be. She was unable to. She was uh, unable to make it. But this week we uh, we're, we're talking about Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. So if you want to, if you want to hear our thoughts. On this seminal classic, you can check us out uh, at Living in the Stacks. That episode is set to come out on uh, tomorrow, as of as of uh, the, as of today. So Tuesday, the tw- the twenty first uh, is is when that's set to come out. So be sure to check that out as well, and all of our other fine programming. Donna's stuff is fantastic. You heard a preview of that uh, at, during the break, and her stuff with uh, the with. Uh, Supernatural as well. Just all kinds of phenomenal stuff Donna's doing. And once again, we're hoping to try and bring in some more podcasts. And hey, if you are a podcaster yourself and you want to join our network, you can be you you can email us at gumbacatnetworks dot uh, at gumbacatnetworks at gmail dot com, and we will keep in touch with you. And we will see if you're a good fit for our for our network. We'd love to have more people join us. We've kind of hit a, a bumpy patch because of uh, personal stuff uh, between our our producers. But we, we would love to have more people join our, our family. We would love to have you. We, uh, we'd love to listen to your stuff and see if you're a good fit. 
So send yeah, send all that to popcorn junk uh, that that to Gumby Cat Networks. That's our network uh, email. So if you're interested in joining us, send that send any send any queries to gumbycatnetworks at gmail dot com. Uh, but if you were if you know if other if you're not listening to us through our through our, the homepage, you're probably listening to us on your various podcast providers. In which case, be sure to leave a five star rating and review to let people know, hey, you like the show and and that they should check it out as well. Uh, you can also share us on social media. Uh, the social media home for Popcorn Junkie is facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. That's where all the major announcements are going to be. I'm hopeful to do more stuff uh, coming soon. I'm definitely trying. I've been doing, um, there's been a, there's a podcast I, there's a, there's a, there's a podcast I follow called God Awful Movies. It's uh, the Puzzle of the Thunderstorm crew, uh, Eli Bosnick, uh, No Illusions, and Heath Enright, who discuss Christian and, uh, you know, sort of religious or, if nothing else, like very uh, spiritualist or even anti-science movies. They covered Vax, Andrew Wakefield's Vaxxed. It's one of my favorite episodes because they ripped that movie to shreds like it deserves. And... But they mainly focus on religious and spiritual movies for the most part. They've expanded into uh, Muslim movies, movies that deal with the, the adaptations of the Quran, which actually do exist. Yep. They've covered some Hindu movies, uh, and uh, they've even covered some <laughs> obscure Jewish television episodes, something called Agent Emmis. So if you want to – but I'm, I'm – I'm promoting them, but at the same time, I, they are doing something where they promote their Patreon, and I'm hoping to do that more once a new episode uh, of a Patreon exclusive episode of a Patreon exclusive show goes up. I want to. I think I'm going to start trying to share that with people to say, "Hey, here's what I'm doing on Patreon. You should come check us out." As sort of like a preview sort of thing. Uh, so I'm hoping to do that soon. But yeah, any kind of news, major updates. All of that is uh, can be found at facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. If you want to find me on uh, Twitter, that's at cornjunkiepod. That's where I'm most active. That's where I do the Twitter munch-alongs, the Twitter trailer talks, uh, and where I interact with other reviewers and other and talk about movies. There have been uh, a, a good subset of people uh, commenting on A Star is Born, and it's giving me a lot of good hope for that movie. Uh, they, I've been mentioning, like, oh, is this... is uh, Lady Gaga producing the soundtrack, or da da da. I, I was concerned about the. Did this need remaking? And people are like, people are really giving me uh, some. People are really kind of giving me the mindset of what of what this movie is, looks to be, and it's and it's going to differentiate itself enough, hopefully, to uh, be be worthy of that same name without being a carbon copy of. It seems to take a lot from the Lance Hendricks, uh, Lance Hendrickson, um, I believe it's Lance Hendrickson, and uh, Barbara Streisand one from the 70s. Uh, uh, let me see. Chris Christopherson. I, I knew it was one of those guys. But yeah, Chris Christopherson, that, seem, that seems to be the one they're going for. Uh, we'll see how it turns out later this year. But yeah, I, yo. So if you want to interact with me on Twitter, follow me at Corn Junkie Pod, and you'll and you can join me in the conversations about movies. Instagram, like I said, I think I'm going to try and use more, do some Patreon promoting on Instagram as well. That way, I can promote the Patreon for people who are uh, you know who you know on various social media, so that they know to follow to to 
to follow in. And once again, all you need to do is donate as little as a dollar a month, and you can have access to all of the t- all of the reward tiers. No, all no, no, no tiered rewards right now. I'm just gonna leave it at donate what you can, and you'll be rewarded. You'll be thanked. You'll get to be able to request stuff once we reach our goal, and you can all, and you can you know you'll and you can even uh, and you know once as things progress along on Patreon, all patrons will be created equally, no matter how much they donate. So you can donate. You donate whatever you're comfortable donating, and you will be rewarded. So, uh, yeah, remember that's Patreon.com/slash Popcorn Junkie if you want to help support the podcast in uh, in whatever capacity you're capable of. And then lastly, follow me on Stardust. Uh, I, I, I've got a whole, bu- you know, I've got all four of the movies I covered this week on there. And uh, I always like to share my thoughts on whatever I'm watching, BTV movies or whatever. If you want a preview of my thoughts on the podcast, you can follow me on Stardust at Popcorn Junkie. And I highly recommend you follow some other uh, fine people there. Um, Mars Girl hasn't been as active lately, but Epic Voice Guy, uh, the other internet, John Bailey, he is the king of Stardust. I have yet to see a Stardust reaction uh, channel as good and as... Uh, well, and as much effort put into it as the other internet's John Bailey does. So kudos to you, fellow John Bailey, for all of the work you put into your reactions. They're all phenomenal. And uh, you can also follow the guys at Double Toasted, the Schmoes, No Guys, uh, like I mentioned, Mars Girl. Um, I'm trying to think who else is on there. Most of the people who are on there are pretty small-time reviewers like me. So if you want to join in the conversation and uh, leave your reactions to movies, you can do so by joining the Stardust app. And all you have to do is find the movie, a TV show, a trailer even. Uh, just leave your thoughts on it uh, Stardust and join, and, and people will watch and people will, sh- people will join in the conversation. It's a great little sort of like vine for movie lovers is what I like to call it. So it's a great, it's a great app. I love it and I hope you can join us. And I think that's about it, aside from the email. So if there's anything else you want to uh, talk about, any kind of um, any kind of feedback you want to give me, any kind of uh, suggestions for stuff, uh, once again, any kind of... Um, if you want to share your thoughts, what did you think of Alpha? Did you see Alpha? Were you able to see Alpha this weekend? What did you think of Crazy Rich Asians? Mile tw- Do you disagree with me on, on Mile 22? Do you like that movie? Let me know your thoughts. I would love to do audience feedback and stuff. So send all of your thoughts uh, to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. And I will read the ep- read them out on the mic if you want. And if not, I can always get back to you and we can communicate privately. I'm down with whatever you're okay with. Just as long, you know, all you have to do is let me know. Give me, the, give me uh, your permission to read it out on the show and I will. Otherwise, I'm going to just keep it private. I may mention it. I may mention it, and you know, in like a feedback section down the line, if enough people comment. But you know, unless you want to, unless you, unless you want to make it public, I will be sure to keep things private. Uh, so that about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and unlike Sony Pictures, I don't like delaying my podcast, at least any more than I have to. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. 
Artwork provided by Nafio. N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. <laughs>